You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Sterling Chapman, as always. Today, we're joined with a really special guest, Mike Morawski with My Core Intent. Mike, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Sterling, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Mike, can you uh, can you give us your uh, rundown of your background? Tell us where you came from, what you where how you got started in real estate, and you know what you've accomplished to date. Yeah, you got you know, and hey, I've been in the business about thirty years, so this could take a while. So, <laughs> how much time do we have, right? Um, yeah, I've been in the business about thirty years. I, I started out as a sales agent, uh, selling single family houses, and it's funny how I got into that because I had a I had a general contracting business before that, and I woke up one morning and I was just burned out. I looked at my wife at the time and I said, I, I can't do this anymore, and so I I sold the company and took a year off. And during that year, uh, we house hacked a couple of uh, uh, multifamily, small multifamilies, two flats actually in Chicago. That's where I'm, I'm from. But this was long before house hacking was sexy or the thing to do, right? Today, it's like sure. it's the sexy thing to do today in the market, right? But um, so we house hacked. And, and along the way, I met a real estate agent who was really successful. And I, I went to him and had a conversation with him and said, hey, I'm thinking about going in real estate. He said, well, I think you'd be really good at it. You've got some good skills, you great personality, good sales skills. He said, I think you'd do well. I said, well, could I, would you teach me? I said, could I come and shadow you? And he said, no. He said, I'm going to do something better for you. I'm going to make a cassette tape for you. Now, Sterling, I date myself a little bit. <laughs> I don't think we can find anything to make a cassette tape on today. So, um, but he made this cassette tape for me and I, and I equate it to podcasts today. Right. But I listened to that over and over and over again. And I went into the real estate business and I applied those simple principles he taught me and sold 78 houses in my first nine months into business. I went on to build a team selling 125 homes a year. So it's pretty productive. Uh, and most of that business was investor-based business. 2005, I saw the market starting to change and wondered what I was going to do, how I was going to react to the slowdown in the market. Well, I always wanted to be in the apartment business and uh, have a small private equity firm. So I went out and syndicated my first multifamily deal. It was a little 11-unit deal outside of Chicago. And um, from there, it I, I was so excited about what happened. From there, I went out and I raised $18 million, bought $60 million worth of real estate, it was 4,000 apartments. We did that in five different states. And I built a property management company managing 7,500 doors. Did that in 30 months. So I grew very oh, wow. fast, very unstable. Uh, there were some challenges that came up with that. But today that puts me in the, you know, I'm in the coaching and training business today as a result of all of it. Awesome. So, so fill us in what happened between now and then you, you, you went up to 60 million in real estate and you're managing 7,500 doors. Yeah. So like I said, you know, I grew really fast. I was, I, I really bought a lot of property over leverage and, you know, I was buying property where we were 60, where we were um, 85% loan to value. So I raised $18 million and bought $60 million worth of real estate. You know, you do the quick math and it says, wow, I, I didn't have much, much equity in those deals. 
And I always tell people, make sure you have enough equity in the deals. Don't over lever. And I paid too much for a lot of properties. And, and then along the way, I just kind of took my eye off the ball. But what happened was 2008 came around and it was like hitting a, a brick wall in a freight train at 200 miles an hour. You know, the whole world imploded. I was actually sitting at lunch with my CFO uh, in 2008 and the news happened to be on. And I look at the news and they're carrying boxes out of Lehman Brothers by the dozen. Mm. And I said to him, I said, man, we're screwed, aren't we? He goes, yeah, we're in big trouble. And never saw it coming. I thought that the commercial side, that the, that the multifamily side would be a little bit safer than it was. But come 2010, property values had decreased, occupancies had dropped out. And I had properties that were going to foreclosure. And I was worried about that because I didn't want my investors to get hurt. So what I started to do was move money between my companies. I moved money between profitable companies and the non-profitable companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my attorney, my outside legal counsel and my accountant both said, hey, that's fine. Just leave notes between the companies. Now, Sterling, I'd been involved in recessions in the past. You know, I'd seen corrections in the marketplace of 10%. Recession last 17 or 18 months, but I never saw a recession where the correction was 40% or that they lasted seven or eight years. And that's what happened. So my whole intention and the plan was that I would be able to move that money back and forth, that I'd be able to put it back when the market came back. The problem is the market never came back. My investors wanted to start calling capital. They wanted to get out of deals. We couldn't get out of deals. Um, I didn't disclose to my investors what happened. Ultimately, I wound up uh, being charged on uh, wire fraud and mail fraud charges for the movement of money and non-disclosure to my investors and got sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. So um, I went and I served uh, about seven and a half years uh, in prison and then came home and served another 10 months on on home confinement. And what's interesting is while I was gone, um, a lot of things changed. So I um, I went into prison thinking, man, this is the worst it could get, right? That, that it can't get any worse than this. And I was gone probably about 17 days. And my wife told me that she was going to divorce me. Then it really got bad. Just kind of mm-hmm. took the wind totally out of my sail, wiped me out. So I, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I get up every morning. I'm in this place that's dark and lonely and you, you don't know what's going on. It's kind of like you die and you watch your whole life go on in front of you. And while I was there, uh, I walk into the gym, I'm probably there about six weeks. And this uh, guy walks up to me and he goes, hey, look, and he goes, I know you're having a hard time. He goes, but don't let these people beat you. All they want to do is take the wind out of your sail. They want to take everything from you and they want you not to recover. He goes, they can take all your apartments. They can take your family. They can take your money. But what they can't take is they can't take your knowledge and your expertise. And that was probably one of the most impactful conversations I've ever had with anybody. But it caused me to reevaluate where I was at and take a look at what I needed to do. So over the next several years, I made some choices. You know, there's a, there's a saying in prison, Sterling, that says either you can do the time or let the time do you. And I chose to do the time. So I wrote two books while I was gone, one on multifamily investing. And I'd love to give that away to your listeners at the end of the show also. Um, but that's your complete guide to multifamily investing and why you need an exit plan before you buy. And then I wrote a book on property management. I wrote an ethics study course. And, and so 
for five years, I taught ethics. I taught real estate investing and property management. I went to college. I got a bachelor's degree in theology. I taught Bible study while I was gone. I was, I was on a community outreach program and I went into the community about 40 times, told my story uh, to small business owners and to college students in the area. I, I met a professor from the University of Minnesota and um, we, we wrote a paper together. We co-authored a paper that just got published in January this year in the Business Journal of Ethics. Uh, on, it was an ethics case study. And that paper gets taught. We wrote a set of teaching notes with it. It's a course that gets taught at the collegiate level for forensic accounting classes, for sales and marketing classes. So I really made, uh, I was very productive with my time while I was gone. Um, I came home uh, ready to uh, give back to the community, give back to investors and, and hopefully carry a message of hope and inspiration that people aren't going to make some of the same mistakes, you know, because it's very easy to get in trouble. You know, I believe that there's guys who run companies, women who are CEOs or in C-suites and, you know, middle management people that, that sit there and are faced every day with choices and decisions that, that they can make and one wrong move and it changes the direction of our life. I want people to, to take a look at some of the mistakes I made and not make those same mistakes. Absolutely. Wow, what a, what a story. Um, there's, I have so many questions and thank you, thank you for, uh, thank you for being so open and, and honest about your experiences and be willing to share that with the rest of us. That's, that's very courageous for you to, to be, you know, committed to opening up that way and, and, you know, for the betterment of, of the entire community. So, uh, definitely, definitely applaud you and, and thank you a lot for that. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about um, kind of how how it started to fall apart, and and specifically what got you in trouble, and more of the the details around that. And and I ask because you know we all of our education, all the education out there today, and and all of the marketing and everything is is that you know multifamily is typically safer than like a single family or stock market or something like that. And it tends to be more recession resistant. And, you know, if you have adequate cash reserves and, and long-term fixed debt and you're buying only cash flowing properties, I, I would, I still feel like you should, you know, be in a relatively decent position. Um, I, I, I did hear you say that you were, you were, leveraged to 85%, which I don't even think they let you do anymore. I've never right. seen 85% um, out there. So, or on, you know, on large multifamily deals. So it sounds like that was kind of one mistake. Can you elaborate kind of on how, um, how else things started to fall apart? Yeah, for sure. And I, I, you asked some really good questions um, and stop me anytime that you need to stop me and, and ask. Okay. Um, but yeah, I was over leveraged. And you know, you have to remember back then the banks were throwing money at people. Everybody was throwing money like, at people. Like they are today? Yes. So I want you to take heed in, in this part of the conversation because I see a lot of shades. And I had this conversation yesterday with somebody who is pretty sharp. And I've been listening to a couple of economists lately 
and I would just, I would just kind of watch what's going on and make sure I made a lot of mistakes that you don't have to make. So I was over leveraged. I bought too much real estate for too little down. You know, you can't buy a property today at 85% loan to value. They're going to want you to be 25 or 30% LTV in those deals. So you're going to have to have 25, 30% um, equity in those when you go in. I'm sorry, 60, they want you to be 65 to 70% LTV. And that's a big portion. You know, you talk about that over leverage piece um, and, and not having enough cash reserves. I didn't have enough cash reserves on the side. What I would do today, you know how Sterling, you, you evaluate a deal today and you're gonna look at and say, okay, so this deal, let's say if it runs at 20% vacancy, okay? Or 10% uh, vacancy and another five or 10% loss to lease. Well, I never thought, and people ask me all the time, hey, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I would jokingly say, hey, everybody would move out. But I didn't think people would move out in droves. I lost occupancy by 30, 35% in some properties overnight like that. I had a property in, in a- uh, What do you think drove that, that occupancy? Yeah, because great. In, in my un, you know, understanding of kind of the, the economic ramification in, in the event of a kind of economic strain and people losing their jobs or, or getting less hours, they're going to default on the higher class homes they own and move into apartments spiking up demand. So what kind of economic event drives people out of apartment complexes and where do they go? Yeah. So here, so here's what happened. Uh, I'll give you an example of one property I owned in, in Anderson, Indiana. When I bought this deal, Anderson, Indiana was the number one city in the country to buy a property to, to raise a family in. It was backed by the auto industry and the transportation industry. And those were the two industries that get hit the hardest when the economic collapse happened in 2008. So we had all these companies in town that made little parts for cars. They made the dashboards for cars. They made knobs for radios. They made uh, the uh, insides of seats and the seat beating and all those little accessories that when the car industry got hit, they didn't need those products anymore. So all these little companies went out of business. I had a property manager call me one morning. She said, man, I have 32 moving trucks in the parking lot and I don't have a move out for 45 days. She was in tears. She goes, I don't know what to do. Our occupancies, we bought property that were occupied, you know, in the low 70s. And I would drive the occupancy up into the low 90s. And all of a sudden we went from the low nineties back into the low seventies overnight as a result of people moving out, people doubling up, people moving back home, not being able to pay rent. You know, there's that, there's that space in occupancy that's physical, uh, phys physical vacancy and economic vacancy. I had people that lived in places that uh, couldn't pay their rent. And so I had that economic fact factor too. So one of the things that I, I do today when I go to syndicate a deal is, is I want to make sure that, hey, if, if I have an organic vacancy of 20% that I'm just going to figure in my um, spread, it, you know, in my 10-year run, that what happens if that vacancy goes from 80% to 70% or 65%? 
do I have the money in reserves to substantiate that? I want to put some extra money in an escrow account, and let it sit there in case something like that should ever happen again. Can I run for 36 months, uh, you know, and draw off the reserves if I need to, if I can't pay my bills? Because that makes a big difference in, in how you structure a deal today. You know, I was over leveraged, right? I bought way too many properties way too fast. So I, this instability in my company was very high because we were able to buy so much property so fast because I raised so much money and the banks were throwing money at us. It was like sitting on a two-legged chair trying to lift your feet off the ground and take a bite off your plate, you know? It, it, was, it was pretty bad and very unstable. So when Lehman Brothers went out and AIG and Bear Stearns and all the bad paper got caught up on Wall Street, um, we, we got wiped out and I shouldn't say we got wiped out. It got very unstable, unstable. And we couldn't, um, we couldn't take care of the lack of capital. Now, uh, the deals wound up going to a receiver and the receiver ran those deals for a period of time. So the market would have come back except what happened was the, you know, the feds came in and, and really kind of turned things upside down in my company. So you, you lost the properties and they said, you said they go to a receiver. Is that, is that like with the, the receiver is a, the person at the bank that, that operates? The we, we didn't actually lose them. We turned them over. We did like a voluntary bankruptcy, but we didn't do a bankruptcy. So we had a receiver come in and take the properties thinking that it would help mitigate the problem. And it really didn't. It was, you know, another one of those mistakes that didn't make a lot of sense. We'd have been better off operating the property, but I, you know, at some point that we wouldn't have been allowed to, to let that happen anymore, just based on the legal stuff going on. How, how did the, the feds get involved? What kicked off all of the legal stuff? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we were we were doing some work with another company and the owner of that company got indicted on uh, some racketeering charge from five years earlier that we didn't know anything about. And it was in Arizona. We were in Chicago and this whole thing happened in Arizona on this guy. Um, and as a result of that, we were named in his case as a victim. Well, I had like 240 investors and two of my investors wound up going to the same attorney by accident. They didn't even know each other. And that attorney called the feds. So the feds now they have this us as a victim on this case and they have this thing going on with uh, people calling them. They started to investigate us because we had a guy from our company who was on our payroll who worked for this other guy's company. So it was kind of, it was just kind of a big mess. You know, it was one of those perfect storms, comedy of errors thing that happened. Do you think that had it not been that kind of coincidental thing that you could have weathered the storm and come out on, on the other side of it and put the money back where it belonged? Yeah, uh, well, remember I, I was under the thought process that it was going to be about 17 or 18 months and it wound up being about seven or eight years 
you know. So, that so you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have survived either way. Um, not a, half of our deals would have survived. The other half wouldn't, and and that's what I should have done in the beginning. Was that first four or five properties that were in trouble, that were going to go to foreclosure, I should have let them go to foreclosure, because then I would have been able to keep keep good capital in in where it needed to be. See, I moved money from good good properties to those bad properties, and I should have never done that. If I'd have just let those go to foreclosure, we'd have been okay. One of the other mistakes that I made was I wrote in my offering documents that I would never go back to my investors in it for a capital call. See, because the, the market was moving up pretty rapidly, you know, and um, as a result of that, um, I wrote in the documents thinking, God, this market's great. Hindsight's 2020, but this market's great. I don't, I'm never gonna have to go back to my investors for a capital call. So I'm gonna take that out of my PPM and take that off the table so that, you know, it's an incentive for investors sure. to invest with us and not go to another uh, syndicator. Absolutely. So what would you, knowing everything you know now, what would you have done differently? Yeah, I would have let those deals go to foreclosure. I would have, um, you know, kept in the documents that I could go back to my investor. Well, even earlier, even earlier before you, you know, first, you know, before you even bought them, what would you do differently? Yeah, I would, I'd put more money down on properties. I would negotiate price a little bit better. Um, I would, I would dig in, I would, I would buy a property today, stabilize it before going on and buying the next one. You know, 2007, I bought 17 deals, it was 2,700 units. And, you know, it was just way too much property at one time thinking that I had a team that was stabilizing things, balancing things, and, and they weren't. I just kept buying property. Um, so that was a big mistake as well. So what advice do you have for our listeners that are maybe uh, kind of just, just starting out or, or <clears throat> I, I guess kind of before we, before we get to that, what is your, having gone through the economic catastrophe of, of 2008 and, and, and knowing all the, the indicators in the market at the time and knowing all the feelings of kind of what was going on in the multifamily space in the world at the time. How do you feel today in, you know, April of 2021 with everything that's going on in the market? Is it, is it a similar sensation? Are you getting deja vu or do you feel differently for some reason? I am getting some deja vu. There's no doubt about that. But here's where the difference is. The government is printing more money today and they're putting money into the marketplace. So there's a lot of stimulus money that has happened. Now, here's what I see that's going to happen coming down the road. And I've talked to a couple of economists and I've you know, talked with some other you know, people who've been in the industry for a while. And a couple of things that I see right now is that when they lift the eviction moratorium, and when they lift the forbearance moratorium or foreclosure, the foreclosure moratorium, that we're going to have about a 12 to 18 month run. And then all of a sudden the bottom's going to fall out. 
I would say somewhere 2023 is when um, we're going to really start to see some problems and some shakeups. I think between now and then you're going to see the feds raising some interest rates to try and stabilize and keep uh, inflation from getting hyperinflation. I think they're going to continue to regulate this uh, eviction and foreclosure stuff uh, with the banks. Because as soon as they start to let that happen, I think it's going to be back to, you know, people are going to be in the wilderness and not be able to pay those bills. But I mean, what is the alternative? How long are people going to want to invest in real estate while the government's telling us we can't kick people that don't pay out of the properties? Listen, I, I think people want to keep investing in real estate. So here's what will happen. Uh, people will start to see the change in multifamily and they'll look at other asset classes. So you're going to see big money and smart money start to go towards office and maybe even some retail space. What can they do to retrofit some of that stuff? You know, if I look at the city of Chicago right now by itself, um, there's a five-year absorption rate for office space. That means if nothing happened in the marketplace for the next five years, it would take them that much time to rent all the vacant office space. So when the pricing catches up with that and people say, wow, there's good, good pricing in this. And can I buy a 40 story building in an urban market, do a senior development or a, some other type of a housing project. That's so where you're going to, they're going to, okay. So the idea is not to invest in office space and retail. It's to buy distressed office space and retail and, and transform it into other type of multifamily or senior living. Right. Right. That's why I, I think we're going to see the big money and smart money start to, to go in that direction. Yes. Okay. So, so you're not very bullish on the, the retail and the office space market. I mean, I would say with the, with, with Amazon and, and, you know, remote workers, I, I've kind of not seen that as a long-term positive play to go into office space and, and retail. Yeah, no, um, I think that I always say, you know, right now, realist uh, multifamily is the darling of the uh, commercial industry, right? It's where everybody wants to be. And, and I think that multifamily is always going to be that way. See, part of the issue back in 2008 and 2009 was I, I didn't think multifamily would get hit like it got hit. And I wasn't prepared to weather that storm financially, right? Over leveraged, didn't have enough in capital reserves, even trying to negotiate with some of the banks, get principal reductions and interest rate reductions didn't help enough to, to substantiate it. So let me ask you this. Do you feel like it was more your fault or the industry standard fault, and, and I'm, that may sound like a weird question, but so I'm, I'm wondering, all of us out there running today think we're, thinking we're rosy in our multifamily syndication endeavors. Are we at terrible risk of the same type of environment or do you feel like you went a little too far, a little close to the edge and that's why you got burned? Um, I, I might've gone a little too close to the edge to protect, to try and keep upright the ship of the company, you know, to keep my investors safe and to keep everybody afloat. Um, 
here, here's what I didn't do. My lifestyle never changed. So I didn't fly private. I didn't buy boats. I didn't take big exotic vacations or bigger houses or fancy cars. I, I, I drove a Jeep Cherokee that had 286,000 miles on it when I got, you know, when I got in trouble. So my lifestyle never changed because I knew that 10 years down the road, the equity that I made and the buildup and I sold, would sell my company that it would be different. So I didn't, you know, I reinvested all my money back into the company. Matter of fact, in 2008, I closed a deal. I brought um, uh, 2.8 million into the company in profit. And my partner and I looked at each other and said, let's just roll it again. Let's just leave it in the company. And, and we should have probably pulled a million bucks off the table and didn't do that. Um, and I, I say that because I really was trying to protect my investors and I was really trying to build my company. And I made these, these kind of crazy business mistakes along the way, right? The over leveraged, the pay, paid too much for properties, unstable. And then I trusted people around me thinking that things were getting done and they weren't. So I wasn't paying attention to the red flags. So yes, a lot of it's on me, but there's a good portion of it that's on the market too. And you know now you got the the government that's that's propping up the markets. They're putting the stimulus money into the markets. There's a question around that: How long will that last, and how healthy is that going to be for you know the operator? But multifamily is the place to be, right? So yeah. So <clears throat> I'll go back to my original question of what advice do you have? for other investors. And, I, and I'm, I'd like you to answer in two different ways, if you don't mind. I, I, I'm curious, the, the, what, what advice do you have for a young and up, up and coming operator? Um, and then what advice do you have for the, you know, uh, potential limited partners, the investors that are looking, seeking out an operator? How can they find, you know, operators that are making, safe quality decisions to avoid, you know, neither side of the table wants to end up in that situation. So like what recommendations would you have for both of them? Yeah, so, um, you know, from a limited partner standpoint, vet your sponsor, make sure that, you know, that they're really checking all of the, all their stops along the way. And that sponsor needs to be looking at all the different things that could happen. I'm a big think it through guy. So if I look at, you know, Hey, if this market got hit and everybody moved out again, remember I told that I, I, I said that my investors said, Hey, what's the worst thing that could ever happen? And I would jokingly say, Oh, everybody'd move out. I never thought that occupancies would drop 30 and 40% across the board, but they did. So do we have a play in place that will protect if that happens? I think that if a sponsor comes to the table and talks to a limited partner and says, hey, look, here's what I have. I got a good partner with a balance sheet. I've got a good key principal. I've got a good operator. And we have run these scenarios that if occupancies drop, if the market gets hit, if we get too many evictions, here's, here's what we look at and here's how we can protect it. Listen, Sterling, nobody can ever be 100%. You can't guarantee it, right? I had investors who said, look, I was a big boy. I read the documents. I understood that, that things could happen and that I could lose my money. You know, 
So you have to be aware that things can happen. Hey, investing is inherently risky. You try to hedge against it as much as you can, but you can't be perfect. So um, let's hop over to our, uh, I'm going to pretend later like that was a sound effect that we added to the (laughs) fancier podcast than mine with higher budgets have sound effects like that while they transition between segments. So (laughs) should I play it again? Yeah, play it again and then we'll move on over to the radio round. So at the end of, you know, towards the end of every show, we like to ask all of our guests just three questions to help us kind of get to know you and, and your headspace a little bit better. The first one is, what's your favorite book? Uh, my favorite book is uh, next to the Bible, Sterling, is uh, Gary Keller's book, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. I love that I, book. I, I think that that's probably one of the best uh, strategy and implementation books uh, ever written. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, what is your favorite, uh, quote? Um, I have a lot of favorite quotes, but one, one that I really like is, uh, a quote in a book called the art of war by Sun Tzu. And what he says in that book is he says, continue to plan battles from the beginning, knowing what the outcome will be. Never just show up the day of the battle, expecting to realize the game. So what that means to me is that I have to plan my exit. I have to plan for all of those little things that could happen along the way. I have to plan for if everybody moved out of my property again. So I can't just show up and expect things to happen. You know, um, one of the things that we really didn't talk about is my book, Exit Plan, which is your complete guide to multifamily investing and and why you need an exit plan before you buy. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and countless hours going to seminars and training. And everybody teaches us how to get in a deal, how to operate a deal, how to find a deal. Never how to get out of one. Right. And so that's what I wrote a book on. So I'd love to give that away too to your listeners. So Absolutely. That kind of reminds me of... uh the the you ever seen the Johnny Depp movie Blow? And yeah, they're, take, they're taking off the airplane. He goes, "You sure you know how to fly this thing?" He goes, "Yeah, it's not the taking off you have to worry about; it's the landing." <laughs> they always in the seminars they teach you how to take off, but they never teach you how to land. Right, right, right. God, I haven't thought about that movie in years. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, please tell our, our guests how they can they can get your free book. I would personally uh, love to check it out and we'll absolutely read it. Um, and then just kind of tell our listeners about your educational platform and any other ways that they can get in touch with you, that they can learn from you, um, that they, you know, that they can find out more about you. Sure. First of all, I'm all over social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you are, um, you can you can find me there. Um you can grab my book by going to my website, which is mycoreintentions.com, put in forward slash exit plan, and you can download the ebook. Um, it, it, you know, I had somebody print it off and they go, my God, this was a big book. I said, yeah. <laughs> they said, I thought it was just going to be a, a little uh, seven or eight page deal. I said, no, it's a book. <laughs> so um, I tell a lot of stories and a lot of strategies and techniques in there. Uh, my website is mycoreintentions.com. 
mike.com. And you can reach me at mike at mycorintentions.com. And I welcome any conversations, any questions anyone has. I, you know, Sterling, I've been very transparent. And, you know, if I, I left any holes, uh, you know, feel free to call me and ask me. So. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you again. I really do mean it. It, 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 it takes a ton of courage to come out like you have. And, um, and it really shows, you know, how much you care about the community and looking to share and give back and protect other, other folks from, you know, making the same mistakes. So really do appreciate you look forward to reading your book and, and staying in touch and, and keeping up with you for the, you know, the, the second part of this journey for you. So thank you so much for coming on, Mike, and, and, and we'll uh, hope to chat again soon. Thanks, Sterling. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.